Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode two, The Shrewdness of King Bimbisara. Today we find out about the great king of Magadha. His name is Bimbisara. We find out about his foreign policy, about religion and everyday life in Magadha under his reign. In terms of foreign policy, he was the man who ran his kingdom with such efficiency and he, he constructed the administration with such care that he laid the foundation for the biggest empire in the history of India. In terms of religion, he was the personal friend of Buddha and Mahavira. And in terms of everyday life, we're going to find out a little bit of what it was like to live in the, 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 the cities and the villages of Bimbisara's Magadha. Bimbisara himself, what sort of guy was he? Well, his name Bimbisara means um, something like golden colour. Um, he, he's born a prince, he, he's not um, a self-made man. He's not the founder of the house, uh, his father's king. But he's anointed king by his father when he's very young, just around 15 years old. And he rules from then um, for many, many years, perhaps as many as 50 years is the length of his reign. And in that time, he takes Magda from uh, what's just another of the great houses, kind of cowering in the shadow of, of bigger and more important houses like Kasala upstream. He takes this, this house and he, he doubles it in size. And even more important, he changes the administration, changes the, the way that the house is constructed such that it becomes the basis for an empire. By the way, worth noting, everything I'm saying is a little bit tentative, right? I mean, um, lots of the facts are up in the air. For example, we don't really know the name of his father. We have a couple of suggestions, but we're not sure which one it is. And we don't even really know what decade he was born in. Right? It hangs on facts such as when the Buddha was enlightened. I'm not going to bore you with a long discussion of the dates. It's probably around the mid the mid 540s BC. Um, but this is all a bit tentative and we're kind of filling in the facts and making some educated guesses. Okay, the, so Bimbisara, at the start of his reign, could have looked around Magda and he could have seen it as an underdog, surrounded by powerful states. Kasala, the huge bully boy of the region, is just upstream. And Vrigi, um, the invincible republic, is just on the other side of the Ganga. And downstream is Anga, which is another of the great houses, another of the Mahajanapadas. And Bimbisara's father had, had fought Anga and been beaten by them. So he could have seen Magda as surrounded by uh, powers that could easily have crushed him. Um, nevertheless, Bimbisara could have looked at Magda and seen that it had great potential. It's got people, it's got a sound military position, it's got enough money to get by. Let's break that down a bit. So it's, it's full of people power. The, uh, the texts say that it had 80,000 villages. That, that's probably not exactly right, but it's an indication that it had a lot of villages. And they're said to be very prosperous. Because the soil of Magda was very fertile, it's, it's ideal for rice. Um, and this gave 
uh, Magda enough people power to have a large army, a standing army perhaps, with, with huge weapons. So Magda's got people power. It's also got military power. Right? The, um, it's, in a, it's in a good military position, uh, a good home base from which to make attacks on other houses. So the capital, Rajagriha, is uh, surrounded by a thick stone wall and five hills. It's a, it's a very well-defended city and one of the great cities of the, of, the, of the ancient Indian world. And Magda itself, as a, as a, as a state, is, is quite easily defensible as well. It's got the Ganga to the north, and to the south it's got this impenetrable forest. Uh, you, you might think of forests as not so impenetrable, but they, they really are incredibly impenetrable in the ancient Indian uh, mind, in the ancient Indian world. Um, especially to armies, right? So hundreds of years later, after Bimbisara's time, that forest is still there. And in fact, there are kingdoms in that forest. And although the forest is surrounded entirely by an empire, uh, the kingdom still persists in the forest free of the empire's influence because it's just impossible to get an army in there. And the emperor of the time has to resort to just burning down the forest to try and bring these um, forest kingdoms to heel. So the forests are absolutely impenetrable. Magda is safe having the forest at its back and the Ganga at its front. Magda's also got some financial power. It's got some control of the trade routes that go by land along the banks of the Ganga. And it's also got some control of the trade routes by river. It might also have uh, a little bit of gold from the river Sona, which is at its border. But maybe that was just a name. So Bimbisara is looking around and he's seeing Magda maybe as an underdog, but with some real potential and actually in quite a strong position in some ways. And he takes this state and by the end of his reign, he, he's doubled it in size and, and more than doubled it in prestige. Bimbisara achieves this by a two-step process. Step one, love. Step two, war. Step one, love. Or at least marriage anyway. Bimbisara secures most of his uh, borders by marrying wisely. Uh, the first wife is called Kima. She's the princess of a powerful, uh, a powerful great state, way upstream. This marks him out as a man to respect, a man who's got big allies, someone to, to listen to. His second wife is more important for our story. Her name is Kasala Devi. Remember Kasala, that great big bully boy state just upstream? The one that once, according to legend, ruled pretty much the whole of India. The one where, which contains two of the six greatest cities of ancient India. Huge state, very powerful. And its king at the time was called Prasenajit. He was the one who married a slave woman, uh, a slave woman's child, um, and then found out about it and got rid of her and then took her back. Anyway, Prasenajit is a pretty decent sort of chap by and large, and Bimbisara wants to make friends with him, so they, they chat about it, and they decide that what, what's going to happen is that Prasenajit's sister, Kasala Devi, is going to marry Bimbisara. So Prasenajit sends his sister, Kasala Devi, over to Magda to get married. But wait, there's more. There's a dowry too that goes along with Kasala Devi. There are some... Uh, villages, or maybe just a village, in a region called Kashi. Uh, it's quite close to the border with Magda. 
And along with giving Kasala Devi to be married to Bimbisara, Prasenajit also gives the rights to tax that village. It might have even been a few villages. Um, gives the rights to tax that village. So all the tax money from that village now goes to Bimbisara. And the idea is that's going to that's gonna provide enough money for Kasala Devi's bath powders and perfumes. So here's Kasala Devi, clearly a woman who bathes a lot and smells pretty good because she's got a whole village's income um, devoted solely to, to helping her smell nice. There had been fights and squabbles between Magda and Kasala in, in previous generations, and this put an end to them. Now Bimbisara and Prasenajit are really on very good terms, and they have no more squabbles for the rest of Bimbisara's long reign. Bimbisara's third wife was called Chelana. The Vrigi, remember, were that republic, that non-kingdom, that semi-democratic republic on the opposite side of the Ganga, up to the north. And the Lichavis were the most important of the clans of the Vrigi. They were also a republic, and they ruled the capital. So Bimbisara uh, thinks to himself, well, look, a republic can't be beaten by a kingdom. That's what the Buddha says. That's what the Artashastra will say. The Artashastra was that, uh, that, that kind of Indian version of Machiavelli, if you like, uh, that tells you how to rule. That's the advice the Artashastra will say. But Bimbisara knows that advice. He knows that a kingdom can't beat a republic. Uh, that what you have to do with the Republic is just appease them and let them be and hope that they don't start to invade you. And that's exactly what Bimbisari does. He marries Chilana um, and that makes peace with the, with the, the Vrigi across the stream. There are other wives that Bimbisara has. Uh, at least one of them is mentioned by name. Perhaps Bimbisara has as many as 500 others. Uh, that seems to me absolutely incredible. Having one wife uh, is just the right number um, and consumes more than enough of your energy and your time, your devotion, that I can't possibly imagine uh, wanting to have another. Bimbisara has secured his borders upstream and across the other side of the river. And now he turns his attention downstream towards Unga. A little about Unga. Unga is another of the, the great houses, the Mahajanapadas. It's a place of legend, like Kasala, but less powerful. It actually gets mentioned in the great epic, the Ramayana. Uh, it, in the story, Ramayana's going about the place, and he comes to a hermitage. And the, the hermit there tells him a story about the origin of the hermitage. The hermit says, look, where I'm sitting is where Lord Shiva was sitting um, way back in the day. Shiva had just got married to Bhavati, and he was kind of coming back home. And as he was coming back home, he sat here in this hermitage and he meditated. And the love god, whose name is Karma, the love god thought it would be a good idea to interfere with Shiva and his new wife. Now, we don't know exactly how he was going to interfere, because Lord Shiva there uh, was sitting right there in the hermitage, and he kind of saw Karma coming. He said, uh, this guy's up to no good. And, and we're told that he hummed at Karma with his disapproval. And then his, his third eye opens and, and looks at the love god, looks at Karma, and it burns him. In fact, it burns his body clean away. Now, the word anger means body. 
So that's uh, the name for the place where the love god lost his body. Uh, and Ananga means without body. And so we call the love god Ananga from now on. So that's the, the kind of etymology, the historical origins of Anga. By the way, there's, there's nothing uh, nearly so interesting about the etymology of Magda. There are a few crazy stories, um, but, well, maybe they're not crazy. There are a few stories, but, but Magda probably just means middle. So it's the ancient equivalent of Madhya Pradesh, which is the central province in India today. Anyway, Anga, this, 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 this land of legend, is still powerful. Maybe not as powerful as Kasala is right now, but in the 6th century uh, BC, it's got control of the river, perhaps all the way to the sea. And it's, it's been powerful enough to, to have ruled Magda in the past. Um, it doesn't rule it anymore, but even in the last generation, Bimbisara's father was beaten soundly by Anga. So Anga's still a serious force to be reckoned with. It's still got the one-up over Magda. And it's, it's a rich place. It's got um, several great cities. In fact, of the, there's those six great cities uh, in the ancient Indian world, uh, it's got one of them as its capital, Champa. Um, it's a very rich uh, trading city. Here's a story about Champa. Once upon a time, there were four rich Brahmins from Benares, and they decided to, to give up their worldly possessions and go and become ascetics. Uh, and they went out into the forest, and they lived on roots and leaves and fruits, as ascetics do. Uh, but they wanted something salty, they wanted something sour. So they, they, they went out down in, into the nearest city, which happened to be Champa. And in Champa, they found four householders. And the householders were rich merchant types. Uh, the householders took their begging bowls and, and welcomed them into, the, into each of their houses. And they put on a huge feast for them. Uh, and they made homes for them in their gardens, homes for the ascetics in the gardens. Um, and, and the ascetics are so pleased, they've got all of their, their worldly needs fulfilled. They, they, they sit there and they, they travel off to various different heavens. Um, and they get very ex excited about the heavens they've seen and they describe it to the people around them. Uh, and the people around them are promptly reborn in the heavens. Um, so that's Champa. It's a, it's a lovely place. Uh, the food's so good, and the hotels are so lovely, they'll send you to heaven, literally. So there's Champa, huge city, right on the, on the river Champa. And there are other cities in, in Unger too. Uh, it's a place known for Jainism uh, at the time. It's a, it's a reasonably powerful player on the Mahajanapada stage. So Bindasara is... Uh, secured his border upstream, secured uh, his border on the other side of the river just by marriages. And now he can take his army that was placed at those borders and he can take it down and attack Unga. Now, Bimbisara's probably got a standing army. He's certainly got a large army and he might well have the use of war elephants, elephants captured from the forests in the south of Magda and trained to become uh, the kind of powerful unit in, in the ancient Indian army. War elephants are like almost like tanks, right? A dozen war elephants will, will easily shift the balance of the battle and, and forms a very considerable force. So Bimbisara uh, attacks Unger with the full force of his, his army. We don't know much about the war, but needless to say, Bimbisara wins and conquers the whole of Unger and has it under his control. 
Uh, he's now got uh, the territory of Ungar under his control, uh, and this gives him complete control of, of trade up and down the river all the way to the sea. Uh, and, and, of course, he's captured the very rich city of Champa. He's avenged his father. And maybe even more importantly, he's got um, more iron because Unger is the local source for iron ore. Iron, uh, iron's a tremendously important thing at this time, of course, as it still is. Iron tools and weapons have been around since the 7th century or even before. And iron is just vitally important economically. Actually, it's it's a little bit unclear why it's so important. So uh, some people say that, that iron was used in weapons, and it, it does seem to have been. Other people say that iron was used to make axes so that you could clear the forests, and, and that would clear up more, more land for you. And because the forests belonged to the king, people would have to buy that land to settle it so the king would become richer and also would have a larger, more prosperous uh, 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 country. Actually, though, there, there are very few... or maybe even no axes made of iron from this time in the archaeology, so it's not clear whether that's true. Um, iron seems to have been used primarily for, for making craft materials, um, you know, bracelets and, and, and things like that. So it's a very economically important thing, partly because of the things that you can make out of iron and then sell on. In any case, Bimbisara has got trade supremacy, he's got his iron, he's got rid of a, an equally powerful rival, and the people who had beaten up his father. Smart moves by Bimbisara. Magda is now uh, double the size. It's still not quite as big and powerful as, as the big boy next door, Kasala, but it contains thousands of villages. So by the end of Bimbisara's reign, Magda is safe and Magda is prosperous. With all his wheeling and dealing and conquering, Bimbisara is clearly a man on the up and up, and so is the kingdom of Magda. So he naturally attracts great men of thought and enlightenment to his court. And two of those great men are well known to us today, Buddha and Mahavira. They both preach their doctrine in Magda under Bimbisara's rule. Actually, there's a, a kind of odd feature of the literature here, because Buddhist and Jain texts compete with, another, with one another, each claiming a, a bit of Bimbisara's glory. The Buddhist texts claim that Bimbisara was a devout follower of Buddha, such that you could uh, never imagine that he could possibly have listened to anyone else. And the Jain texts claim that Bimbisara was a devout friend and a disciple of Mahavira, and couldn't possibly have listened to that other fellow. Here's a classic story from the Buddhist side to give you a flavour of what's going on, and it's actually from quite an early document. So, Buddha was a prince living in the Northern Republic of Shakya, uh, and he was living a kind of spoilt life, um, and, but he, he became quite dissatisfied with it, and he left to become an aesthetic. So he left to do some meditation, um, some fasting, some living on, on, on fruits and roots, and, and all that sort of thing. But pretty soon he became dissatisfied with this too. So he started to search elsewhere for the truth. He put on the clothes of a beggar and he went to the big city, which in this case was Bimbisara's new capital in Magda. By the way, just before the phone rings off the hook with, uh, with complaints, I know that nowadays we don't call the Buddha the Buddha until after the Enlightenment, but ancient texts aren't always so neat. And this one calls them the Buddha both before and afterwards. Um, so... There we go. 
So here we go, Buddha's going door to door in Rajagrihi, in the capital of Magadha, dressed in rags as a beggar. But he's obviously quite a different sort of fellow. He's not your average beggar. People notice him and he causes a bit of a commotion. And eventually, um, news reaches uh, through the palace up to the King Bimbisara himself. And Bimbisara is curious, what's this old fellow doing causing a ruckus in my city? And he goes out to find him and eventually finds him sitting under a tree in the city. And in a moment of supreme foresight, Bimbisara sees that Buddha is going to be a great man. So naturally enough, he offers to make him a captain in the army and to shower him with gold. And I suppose this is the kind of thing that happens to a lot of your average homeless guys down your street. But Buddha refused. After all, he's just left all of that, um, those riches as a prince in his homeland. Um, and he's on his journey to seek the truth. He doesn't want riches and he doesn't want to be a captain in the army. But he must have been at least somewhat moved by Bimbisara's faith because he promised to return once he'd found out the truth uh, and tell Bimbisara about it. So the Buddha goes off and he becomes enlightened. Um, but he remembers his promise to come back to Bimbisara, to come back to Rajagrihi and tell Bimbisara what he's found. So he returns now with a large troop of disciples in tow. And Bimbisara hears that this guy has entered the city and he rushes out to meet him. And just as promised, Buddha tells him what he's discovered. He preaches to him. And as he preaches, Bimbisara attains enlightenment himself. Well, not the full thing, um, but a lesser sort of enlightenment. And profoundly grateful, Bimbisara presents Buddha and his disciples with a lovely bamboo grove and a bunch of huts for them to stay in. And, you know, there's still a, ba a bamboo grove uh, there in Rajagrihi, if you want to go and visit it. All this is slightly suspect to the modern ear, and stories vary. So the Jain literature's got quite a different angle on things. Here, Bimbisara is claimed to be a close personal friend of Mahavira. And in the rainy season, monks and nuns and scholars all retreated to a single place to meditate and study. So Mahavira spent uh, several rainy seasons in Rajagrihi preaching to Bimbisara and the people in the city. So according to the Jain text, Bimbisara is not a, a, a Buddhist, but a Jain. He's a follower of Mahavira. And he builds that lovely bamboo grove not for the Buddhists, but for the Jains. One last story I can't resist. It's another Buddhist one, but it's a funny one. So Mahavira's uh, preaching in Rajagrihi, Griha, sorry, um, and he's preaching to, to Bimbisara and to the rest of the royal household. And he preaches to, to a, a young man in the royal household called Upali. Now, Upali um, is completely convinced by Mahavira, but he's a bit of a loudmouth. He goes round Magda trying to convince everyone that Mahavira is where it's at, Mahavira is right, and those Buddhists have got it completely wrong. Upali even had the cheek to go out and find Buddha, who's probably still wandering around Magda somewhere, to go out and find Buddha and, and tell him that he's wrong. But the Buddha is nothing if not a persuasive guy. And he ends up convincing Upali that actually it's not that Buddha's wrong, it's that Mahavira is completely wrong. And Upali, true to his hot head ways, um, throws himself down at the Buddha's feet and says, I was completely and utterly wrong, um, please, please let me follow you. But the Buddha refuses. He doesn't want such a hothead messing up his, his, his disciples. So he tells Apali to go home and to cool down. 
uh, in other versions he um, allows Apali to join in the end. In any case, Apali goes home to the palace and he's wandering around at the palace and there he meets his old master, Mahavira. And Apali's still a loudmouth, still a hothead, and he starts attacking his former master, starts slagging him off and telling him how wrong he was. And Mahavira becomes so incensed that hot blood gushes from his mouth. Well, what to think of all this? Here's my two cents. None of the texts these stories are from are contemporary. None of them are written at the time of Buddha and Mahavira. We just don't have any texts from that time. The first bit of writing we have won't appear until episode three or four. Um, they're all later texts, and you might think that they're written not with the age of Buddha and Mahavira in mind, but the age they were written in in mind. It might be um, tempting to think of them as just attempts to gain prestige for Buddhism or prestige for Jainism and to put the other guys down by reading back into history a sort of rival between Mahavira and Buddha that just wasn't there. And I think it's most likely that there was nothing odd at all about being a follower of Buddha and a follower of Mahavira at the same time. Um, and that any person with even a little bit of political know-how, let alone someone as smart as Bimbisara, would show respect to um, the teachers of all the different sects. So what was life like? in Magda under Bimbisara's reign. Well, Bimbisara had made Magda the most efficient administration of any of the 16 great houses. He carefully handpicked his ministers. They're called Rajabhata. And this isn't just a hodgepodge council of people who are in the king's favour and, and can move up and down. This is a professional civil service. There's a hierarchy. There are different branches. There are uh, the people in the army, the people in the judiciary, the village headmen, the people who organised the whole deal as well. It's said that Bimbisara never overruled the advice of his ministers, although that seems a little bit too much to me. He also seems to have started big projects like roads and irrigation uh, throughout the kingdom. This is sound Keynesian economics. And he devolved some of his powers. He realised that Magda was too big for him to rule efficiently, and he delegated well. So Unger, he hands off uh, to his son, uh, and there's also talk of having a viceroy at Champa. It's not clear whether that's the same person. This efficient administration goes at least some way to explaining why Bimbisara could punch above his weight, why he could become so influential um, Someone with that sort of control over their territory is going to collect tax very efficiently, is going to be rich, and they're going to be impressive enough to make alliances with much bigger states uh, and powerful enough to beat uh, his father's conqueror. But the efficiency of the administration is also going to have an effect on everyday life of folk in Magda. So um, life for the town folk is going to be dominated by this centralised government. Maybe it's going to be quite similar uh, to life in Kasalan towns, as we described last week. There's going to be something like a police force that interferes with your life. Most people are going to be traders or are going to be specialised in a craft. Um, much more of this sort of stuff in later episodes where we've got really good data for it. Life for the village folk is also going to be influenced heavily by the government. 
most of your time as a as a village person is going to be spent in agriculture, probably in rice. But there are also craft villages. There are loads of villages, like like I said earlier, eighty thousand in all. Um, although in truth, that probably refers to uh, a large, generically large number sometime after Unger was conquered. But some of these villages gain reputation. So your village might be famous for one thing or another. So we get a village called Sananigama, which is famous for the quality of the soldiers living there. So if you're a young boy growing up in Sananigama, uh, you probably uh, are going to become a soldier like your father. Or there's Ekanala, which is a, a village famous for its Brahmin Buddhist sage. So if you're a, a young lad growing up in Ekanala, you grow up to become... Um, well, I guess some sort of um, participant in the tourist industry or something like that. The King's Reach extended into, into village life. Right? The village is ruled by a chieftain, uh, a Gramica. And these guys consulted with the king. Right? In fact, sometimes all 80,000 of them consulted with the king at once. So this is kind of someone who's got a direct line to the king. Below the Gramica uh, is an assembly um, probably the, the, just the heads of the most prestigious families. And the civil service is reaching down into the village as well. The Mahamatras, the civil service. They're going to be taking measurements of your land for tax purposes. Um, they're going to be recruiting people and they're going to be judging over the disputes that you have. So the judge might decide that you, know, you have to lose a limb or you have to be put in jail or whatever for your misdeeds. Jails, by the way, are fairly unusual in the ancient world, um, or at least in the ancient Mediterranean, probably because they're quite expensive. They're mainly used just to keep people uh, before the trial. Uh, and and you know, if you're found guilty, then you're killed or you're mutilated or you're exiled. But here in Magda, at least, uh, it seems to have been used as a punishment. So if you were found guilty, you might have then been sent to jail as a punishment as opposed to being killed or mutilated or exiled. Other things about day-to-day -day life are pretty obvious. Religion, obviously a huge part of life, as it is in almost all times and all places. Um, the Buddha uh, spent a lot of time uh, teaching in Magda and travelling around it, as did Mahavira. Uh, and the Buddhism in particular comes to be associated with Magda. So the first Buddhist councils there, it's going to be there in the generation after Bimbisara. It's, it's held in a cave near the capital. You can actually go and still see the cave, uh, although it looks on the small side, and it's not altogether clear whether the council happened as it's said to have done. In any case, the council is said to have set up the rules for Buddhist monks and to establish what the Buddha said and what the Buddha didn't say. In fact, although Buddha himself was born in, in, in the Shakya's territory, you can say that Buddhism was born in Magadha. Women also seem to have, uh, have had a significant role in Magadhan society, perhaps more significant than, than they did elsewhere in ancient India. Um, Bimbisara uh, seems to have been quite liberal and progressive about, about women's issues. There are stories about how he allowed his wives and other women in his palace the, the freedom to visit the Buddha, and, and even allowed his wife to become a nun. Progressive stuff. Anyway, we shouldn't read too much into this. You know, Buddhist nuns are still very subservient to monks. Uh, there are a bunch of rules about what nuns should do to monks. One of them is like, a nun, it doesn't matter how, however senior a nun is, doesn't matter if a nun's been 
uh, appointed a nun for her entire life and a monk has only this very day become a monk, the nun must defer to the monk. Um, and in fact, nuns must at least once a season go up to the monks and, and check with them that everything they're doing is all right. So this isn't exactly women's lib. Last week, we started a new section, which I called with some pomposity, From the Mouths of the Ancients. And the idea is just to give a, a sense of what the ancient texts are like. This week, the selection is from the Mahabharata, which is one of the two great Hindu epics. The actual epic was written down in its, its form that we have it today, uh, quite some centuries in the future from the time we're looking at now, but it was, might well have been written about this time. And I'm just going to read uh, a section where Magda is used as a kind of morality tale to give a flavour of the Magda of legend, although note that these events are supposed to have happened uh, far before the historical period we're interested in. So Karna is speaking and he's going to use Magda as a moral lesson. He says, indeed, in a season of distress, friends can neither benefit nor injure. Everyone's happiness, or the reverse, depends only on destiny. He that is wise and he that is foolish, he that is young and he that is old, he that has allies and he who has none, all become, it is seen everywhere, happy or unhappy at times. It's been heard by us that there was of old a king by the name of Amvu Vicha. Having his capital at Rajagriha, he was the king of all the Magda chiefs. He never attended to his affairs. All his exertion consisted in inhaling the air. All his affairs were in the hands of his minister. And his minister, named Mahakani, became the supreme authority in the state. His minister regarded himself as all-powerful and began to disregard the king. And the wretch appropriated for himself everything belonging to the king his queens, his treasures, his sovereignty. But the possession of all these things, instead of satisfying the minister's avarice, only served to inflame him all the more. And having appropriated everything belonging to the king, he even coveted the throne itself. But it had been heard by us that with all his best endeavours, the minister succeeded not in acquiring the kingdom of the monarch, his master, even though the latter was inattentive to business and content with only breathing the air. What else can be said, O king, than that monarch's sovereignty was dependent on destiny? If, therefore, O king, this kingdom be established in thee by destiny, it will certainly continue in thee, even if the whole world were to become your enemy. If, however, destiny has ordained otherwise, howsoever mayest thou strive, it will not last in thee. O learned one, remembering all this, judge of the honesty or otherwise of your advisers. So there you go, there's Magda as a, as a moral lesson that you're getting what comes to you no matter what may. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks again to my friend Cam Chadder for the music. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.